The following is used with permission by Dr. Stafford Betty. We hope you enjoy the show. Kern City Poltergeist. A case severely straining the living agent hypothesis by Stafford Betty. The word poltergeist literally means in German, a disorderly, disruptive, or noisy spirit, geist. Unlike apparitions, poltergeists are seldom seen, but the impact they have on their habitat is not only seen, but usually heard as well. Some psychical researchers think these disturbances are caused by a mysterious psychic discharge of energy from a living person, almost always someone in the house who resides there. If they are right, then the poltergeist is simply an inexplicable phenomenon, not a spirit or discarnate intelligence, and wouldn't serve as evidence of an afterlife. Others think the disturbances are caused by an unseen intelligence trying to convey a message, usually to the resident or residents of the house. In that case, we can speak of a geist in the fullest sense of the word, an invisible person-like being motivated to bring about change in the physical world, though without the help of a physical body. Still, other researchers, probably the majority, think that some poltergeists are the first type and others of the second. Needless to say, if only one is a spirit, then the evidence of an afterlife for the rest of us is very strong. In fact, the literature provides many instances of what appear to be spirits. Rather than look at several cases as we did in the last chapter, we'll investigate one in depth. I'm not a field researcher by trade, but in this case I became one. The case fell into my lap unsolved. It took place about a mile from my office on campus. I was called to the scene because no one else in Bakersfield, California knew how to get help for the poltergeist's desperate victim. The editor of the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, where it was published in 1984, was as struck by its evidential power as I was. From where I sit, it argues compellingly for a spirit source and therefore an afterlife. In addition, it's a bit of a thriller in the telling. Here it is, edited for a non-professional audience. The full account can be accessed at http colon slash slash csub.academia.edu slash Stafford Betty. On January 27th, 1982. A certain Paula Calvin called me and explained that a friend of hers was in trouble. She described what appeared to be a rather typical poltergeist outbreak, though she did not use the word, and asked me to help. I immediately called the victim, a certain Francis Freeville. Francis, 63 years old, turned out to be a wealthy, prominent, civic-minded widow and the executive director of an important nonprofit organization in town. I would later learn that she did not drink, had never used drugs or smoked pot, and was not on medication. She had every reason to be embarrassed about what was happening to her and told me so. She was somewhat impatient with my theories and only wanted to know if I could help her get rid of it, whatever it was. 
At wit's end, but desiring to help, I called a friend, Ava Jacobs, a sensitive. Ava, her 15-year-old daughter, Jenny, a gifted sensitive, and I converge on Francis's house that afternoon. Francis's white, single-story, three-bedroom home is an attractively furnished, comfortable, but unpretentious dwelling in a middle-class senior community known as Kern City. As you walk through the front door and stand in the living room, you might first notice the green expanse of a golf course through the sliding glass doors behind the dining room table. Off to the left is a hallway leading to the three bedrooms. Straight ahead is the kitchen. Off to the right, sharing a wall with the living room, is the garage. And behind the garage, looking out onto the golf course, is the study. Even though the houses are built fairly close to each other, the neighborhood is quiet. Frances's most obvious neighbors are rabbits in her backyard, which her dog, Missy, a Yorkshire Terrier, sometimes barks at. Frances has been living in the house for only two months when I arrived on the scene. The other leading figure in the story, apparently, is Miss Margaret Meg Lyons, pseudonym. Meg lived in this house since 1962 when it was built. Her husband died a few months after moving in. In the late 60s, she married Bradley S. Lyons, pseudonym, who is still alive. Meg was a career woman with the Girl Scouts and is remembered by her son-in-law, Luke Cowley, pseudonym, whom I have interviewed extensively as a dominating woman in a completely subtle way, very autonomous. Luke, who was close to his mother-in-law, described her as clever, incredibly successful, great in groups, enjoying attention, always the focal point, extremely vibrant, scintillating, strong, very beautiful, the pocket Venus type, stubborn as hell, tiny, only four foot eleven. In answer to questions I directed to him, Luke answered that Meg loved life, never discussed religious issues, had an extremely formalized religion, and was not ready to die when death came quickly and unexpectedly at the age of 74. She loved the house. Luke remembers how visitors would sometimes exclaim, The house is Meg. She had always wanted her daughter, Jonella Cowley, pseudonym, Luke's wife, to live in it someday. Meg died in December 1976. A few months later, her widower, Bradley, moved out, and Luke, always hoping that Jonella would change her mind and consent to move to Bakersfield from their home in Petaluma, looked after the house intermittently for the next four and a half years. Once every three weeks or so, he would drive down from Petaluma and spend three days to a week in the house. Usually, he would come by himself, but on rare occasions, his two sons, or Jonella, would accompany him. Once in 1979, Jonella spent three weeks in the house by herself. But until Francis moved on, on November 30th, 1981, the house had no steady tenant. My visit to Francis's house was undertaken out of a desire to help. I had no intention at the time of writing up a report, for nothing about this case struck me as especially exceptional. 
Ava, Jenny, and I spent three hours in the house, part of the time devoted to assembling the facts and testing for normal explanations of the phenomena reported, the rest of what I will call the exorcism. I am not sensitive, neither is Francis. We merely looked on and mentally recorded our impressions of the goings-on of Ava and Jenny. Francis later told me at that time she thought the exorcism was an exercise in futility. She also confided that she never placed much credibility in psychic stuff. And that when she called her friend Paula on the morning of my first visit, she had not asked for help from a parapsychologist. Paula, whose husband is a real estate agent, took it upon herself to call me and urged me to call Francis and establish contact. Had Paula not called me, Francis would have put her house on the market, with Paula's husband as her agent, and this story would never have been told. The upshot of all this is that only by the most unlikely circumstance did Francis and I get together in the first place. Trickery or fraud of any kind is for these and other reasons to be cited below, out of the question. In the ensuing months after this meeting, I all but forgot about the case. I still had no intention of reporting it and satisfied myself with referring to it in my parapsychology class in spring 1982. Then, on December 9th, 1982, I got a call from Frances. She did not tell me why it was to come the following but it was obvious she was excited about something. It was the next day that I met Luke for the first time. Luke, you will recall, is Meg's son-in-law and had looked after the house during its vacancy from 1977 through 1981. He's a retired career army mate, an intelligent, skeptical, free-thinking sort of person in his mid-60s. He holds a master's degree in English literature and at one time taught courses in literature at Ohio State and military history at the University of San Francisco. He had long been curious about psychic phenomena. He has no known psychic abilities, however. Francis had bought the house in November 1981 from Luke. It was then that they met for the first time but the relationship was destined to continue beyond the business transaction. A week after moving in, Francis put in an emergency phone call to Luke in Petaluma. And then a year later, the three of us found ourselves sitting together in Francis's living room. It was during this intensive seven hour interview that I realized I had stumbled upon a case that was extraordinary. It became apparent that the poltergeist had been active long before Francis moved in and therefore she was almost certainly not the generating force of the phenomena reported below. It also became increasingly apparent that the poltergeist, whatever its nature, was intelligent. For reasons that will become clear below, the circumstances surrounding Frances's move into her new house must be reviewed. When Frances was first shown the house by her agent, it was in the condition that Meg had left it five years earlier. Her family pictures were mounted on the walls. Her furniture was in place. Her clothes hung in the closet. Even her underwear was folded in dresser drawers. But within a week, the house was completely transformed under Frances's supervision. She brought in her own furniture. She put in new carpet throughout the house. Most significantly, she made two changes in the kitchen. Where a kitchen dinette set had been, 
she installed a long counter with a cabinet of sliding drawers and hinged doors underneath. She also put in a new sink, raised the counter on either side of the sink several inches. Francis is eight inches taller than Meg was and has back problems, and replaced the worn tile of the counter with a different colored formica. In these and many other ways, Francis redefined the character of the house. Meg's blue rugs, gilt furniture, and colorful peacocks gave way to Francis's more subdued tastes. It had been 19 months since Francis's husband had died. She had experienced the usual dislocations of acute grief while in her old house, but had not experienced anything paranormal. Her period of active grieving had long passed by the time of the move. As mentioned above, she eagerly anticipated the move. She had no regrets about leaving her old house. Poltergeist phenomena began the day Francis moved in and continued for two months. I grouped the reported activity under 15 headings. 1. The actual moving of furniture was completed by about 10 p.m., November 3rd. The movers had just left and Frances was sitting quietly in her new living room. Suddenly, she noticed a peculiar thumping and chafing noise coming from what seemed like the kitchen. She vaguely wondered what it was, but dismissed it as either heat expansion noises, the furnace was on, or the plug knocking and dragging against the cooler on the roof. This had happened once before in her previous house. Not in the least alarmed, she prepared for bed. As planned, she shut the doors leading into the two unused bedrooms and the unused bathroom. Luke had kept the vents leading into these rooms closed in order to save on heating expense, and Frances decided to follow Luke's example. She made a point of closing the doors to these rooms. 2. The next morning, when Frances got up, she found these three doors wide open and thought to herself that there must be a draft in the house. That very day, she called in a repairman, Ernest Dozier, and had him weather-strip the front door and raise the stoop of the door leading out from the dining room into the garage. She later showed me the work that Dozier had done. He had raised the stoop approximately one half inch. Both doors fit snugly. 3. That first morning, the sewer system backed up while Francis was showering. That same day, she called the plumbers, and they dug up the yard. The system was in a state of total disintegration. Francis was very annoyed at having to spend $600 to repair the system, for the escrow papers indicated that the house was in perfect shape. A week later, after additional problems, Francis would place a call to Luke in Petaluma and stop just short of accusing him of a breach of contract. Luke assured her, and me, that during the years he had been using the house, there had never been a problem with the drains. 4. On the day of the move, November 30th, Luke offered Francis a pink vanity bench that had belonged to Meg. Francis said she would be glad to have it, and the bench was placed in front of the built-in dressing table in the master bedroom. For the next three or four days, Francis kept finding the bench pulled out. Always, she would push it back in under the table. 
only to discover that it was out and in the way a little later. She was sufficiently annoyed by the bench to store it in the garage on approximately her fourth day in the house. At the time, however, it did not occur to her that there was anything especially odd about the bench. It was not until she began to think in paranormal terms that she realized how unlikely it was that she herself would have left the bench pulled out so frequently. Of peripheral interest is the fact that when Luke's wife, Jonella, learned that he had given the bench away, she was upset. On his first trip to Bakersfield after Francis's move, he managed to get the bench back. And at this time, Jonella is using the bench in her home in Petaluma. The gist of all this is that Meg had a great attachment to the bench and that Jonella wanted it for sentimental purposes. Five, on her second night in the house around 9.30, Francis was eating in the dining room when she again heard noises apparently coming from the kitchen. But still, she was unsuspicious and remembers wondering if a squirrel or even a bird could have come through in the roof vent to seek warmth. Six. That night, Frances slept on a couch in her living room because her back was bothering her. As before, she made a point of closing doors. In addition to the there aforementioned, she closed the door to the master bedroom and the sliding door leading into the kitchen. The next morning, all five of these doors were wide open. Furthermore, all of the sliding drawers of the newly installed cabinet were open, but not so far as to fall out, and the cabinet doors underneath the drawers were also open. Francis called Ernest Dozier back into the house, this time to check the door latches. He assured her the latches were working normally. I, of course, later checked them myself, and they worked perfectly. She also called in the carpenter, who had made the cabinet, and asked him to see if it was level. It was exactly level. Francis remembers the carpenter's quizzical look. It was only then, for the first time, that she asked herself, What the hell's happening here? Still, she dismissed it. Perhaps she hadn't actually latched the door, she thought, and vibrations from truck traffic on a highway a block away might have jostled the drawers and doors open. I later checked these drawers and doors for drag, and they were entirely normal. A strong earthquake, which hit Koalinga, 90 miles north of Bakersfield, on May 2nd, 1983, failed to budge them, even though Bakersfield rocked and rolled. Seven. For the next two months on arising, Francis usually found the hallway doors open, the sliding kitchen door open, and the drawers under the counter open. On several occasions, she experimented, opening the doors and drawers herself before going to bed. When she did this, they would usually be closed the next morning. Five out of seven nights on the average, something would happen, she reported. Eight. Within the first week of Francis's moving in, the chain operating the motor-driven garage door snapped. Nine, it wasn't long before the lights began acting up. When Francis came home, day or night, she found one of three lights 
in the living room, in the dining room, or in the kitchen turned on. Soon, she called in an electrician and had each of the light switches replaced. The replacement of these switches seemed to solve the problem. But no sooner had this problem been solved than two more lights, one in each of the bathrooms, started to turn on by themselves when Frances was out of the house. When she replaced these switches, this particular disturbance again ceased. It was after the initial light episode, about a week after the move, that Frances called Luke and Petaluma. She tactfully complained about the light switches, the sewer, and the garage door. Luke reported that he was more surprised than Francis, for he knew the house well and had never had any problems with the light switches, sewer, or garage door. Francis remembers Luke saying, It's as if the house is complaining about you being there. But there was no discussion of paranormality. 10. Francis experienced the first violent poltergeist outbreak about two weeks after her move. She was wide awake, smoking a cigarette in the living room one afternoon, when suddenly the sliding kitchen door roared shut and sounds came from the kitchen as if half a dozen people were banging around. The sounds lasted no longer than might a rumble of thunder. When she entered the kitchen, she found the cabinet drawers and doors open. But there was no damage. It was from that point on that she began to consider the possibility, with half my mind, as she put it, that she was sharing her house with a spirit who was trying to provoke her. As yet, however, she felt no threat from whatever it was. I felt it would do me no harm as long as I didn't cross it, she remembers. 11. Frances began noting her dog, Missy's behavior. She would be sound asleep, and she'd perk her ears up, run down the hall, scratch on the door like someone was calling her. It was strange, queer. She never behaved like that before. At other times, Missy would rush across the room and cock her head back and forth, as if responding to someone calling her. I witnessed this myself on the day of the exorcism. She had never done this before. Had it been a rabbit or some other animal outside, she would have run across the floor barking. Missy almost never barks at people. 12. Francis noted by accident that it was clammy and cold in one corner of the living room. The cold extended out into the room no more than four feet. You had to be right in the corner, she remembers. Luke later reported that Meg kept a large rubber tree in this corner. 13. About a month after moving in, Francis began hanging pictures. One of these was a brightly colored picture of three women stylishly dressed in pre-Civil War costumes. Each woman was framed by an oval cut out of the background. Francis tried to hang this picture five times in five different places, but on each occasion the picture was, as it were, taken down from the wall overnight. The nail would still be in the wall, but the picture would be neatly propped up against the wall 
below where it had been hung, as if it had been placed there. After the fifth failure, Francis gave up the project for approximately 10 days. Then one day, it was as if a presence directed me to pick up the picture and hang it on the wall of the second bedroom next to the light switch. I would never have hung it there myself. It was much too low and too close to the light switch, but I felt myself directed to hang it exactly there. It was like getting feedback from addressing an audience. You know, how you sense an audience disagreeing with you or getting into it with you. That's how it was. From that time forward, the picture did not budge. When Francis showed it to me, I found it indeed placed in a somewhat unlikely spot next to a light switch. Shortly after the picture was successfully hung, Luke happened to be in Bakersfield visiting friends and dropped in to see Francis. She was showing him around the house and he noticed the picture. I was shocked, stunned, he later told me. Meg had a tri-oval picture, very similar to it, though more subdued in color, and it had hung precisely in that spot. Luke later wondered if they were reproductions of the same print. 14. Francis began to feel disagreeableness when she fixed up the house. Not every time, but often. It was as if it... I called it... disapproval of what I was doing. But as yet, she sensed no danger from her intruder. 15. On January 25th, 1982, almost two months after her move, Frances experienced the most terrifying night of her life. It is perhaps highly significant that on this day, she bought paint and wallpaper to redecorate the master bedroom, formerly Meg's and now Frances's bedroom. And moreover, that she happened to set these down on the counter in the kitchen, the very counter that had replaced the dinette set where Meg had eaten, worked, and conversed with her husband or friends, and that Frances had installed when she moved in, and that was the focus of most of the movements in the kitchen. All that evening, she had the feeling of being observed, after she went to bed, she heard a ruckus in the kitchen. It was like somebody was tearing the place up, but it stopped. And Francis, having heard this sort of commotion once before, stayed in bed and drifted off into an uneasy sleep. At 2 a.m., she got up to use the toilet. She did not turn on any lights. Glare from the street lights and from the city across the golf course provided enough light for her to see. I asked Francis to describe what followed. And here is her report. While washing my hands in the sink, the bathroom window slid back. I was startled and thought somebody was outside trying to break in. But I couldn't see anyone. And besides, the screen outside the window was in place. 
I pulled the window shut and still not fully awake yet alerted went back into the bedroom sat on the foot of the bed and studied the bathroom wondering what in the world is happening about this time the large bedroom window which I always keep open even on the coldest nights slammed shut and the bathroom window opened again with a bang both at the same time I jumped to my feet Almost immediately, the activity shifted to the two closets on the other side of the room. At the exact same time that the folding doors of one closet opened, those of the other closed. This made quite a noise, and Missy was standing up on the foot of the bed where she sleeps, turning her head back and forth from one closet to the other and yapping madly. Then I thought, I've got to get out of here. This is just too much. With my heart racing, I grabbed the dog and started for the hall. Though I had closed the door leading into the hall, as I always did, it was now open, and I charged through. But then I felt an impact. There was a zone of pressure, a mass out of the hall, as if something ominous and ugly was concentrated there. I stepped back into the frame of the doorway. Then I turned on the bedroom light. The switch was on the left, and looked to see who was there. Missy was yapping more shrilly than ever, like nothing visible was there. Then I realized that I had to get out of the house while in time. But the hallway terrified me, and I wondered if I could break through the restricting force. I knew I had to give it a try, and I yelled loudly, GET OUT OF MY WAY! I charged through. I made contact with three entities two were on either side of me as I passed. I could literally feel them, just as one feels oneself brushed lightly in a crowd. I also knew that my passage in some way had caused them to disintegrate, to shatter, to lose power. They were startled and shocked that I had passed right through them. The third was directly in front of me, but stepped back a little as I came through. It was appalled that I had passed through the other two. I can't say how I know this, only that I know. When I got to the end of the hall, I realized I was only in my nightgown. I wasn't about to go back in the bedroom and get my robe. So I went to the closet and grabbed my London fog coat. I started to open the front door, realized the garage was shut, and that anyway, my purse with the keys was on one of the dining room chairs. So I ran across the living room, the coat still over my arm, grabbed my purse, opened the back door leading into the garage, hit the switch that opens the garage door, and started the motor as the door slowly rose. It seemed like a thousand years. I put the car into reverse and hit the gas so hard that I flew down the driveway, clear across the street, up over the curb, into my neighbor's yard. The chult going over the curb made me release the gas pedal. Then I pulled the car into gear and rolled down the street turned the corner, and headed towards Bakersfield downtown. Suddenly, I wondered where I was going and why this way. I pulled over to the curb, realized I was shivering, got out of the car. I was still barefoot in my nightgown and put my coat on, then got back in and started the heater. I sat there for at least an hour, cried, and cursed. I was as mad as I was terrified. Then I decided to drive to the Blue Moon Ranch, 42 miles away, because I couldn't see myself going to a motel looking like a wreck with no shoes and a nightgown hanging down below my coat. 
I remember that it was 425 when I got to the ranch. When I came home the next morning, I had fully resolved to sell the house, even if I had to take a loss. I just had to get out. This was intolerable. On entering the house, I noticed a chill and a musty odor, like a dirt cellar or a swamp, a smell of decay. Then I noticed that the light in the front of the coat closet had been turned off. So had the light in the bedroom and the electric blanket. Then I saw why it was so cold. The bathroom window was still wide open. So was the garage door. I hadn't pressed the genie to close it when I left the night before. That afternoon, Frances went to work as usual. For the next week, she slept fully clothed on the couch in her living room. As described above, Frances's friend Paula called me. This was January 27th, two days after Frances's terrifying experience. Ava, Jenny, and I arrived at Frances's house about the same time, 1.30 p.m. At this point, I must say a word about Ava, Jenny. Ava is a brilliant, multi-talented woman. A little over 40, she attended on scholarship and graduated from Scripps College, has since written several plays in a novel, and has a healing gift. I know her very well indeed. As for Jenny, she is as natural and uninhibited a teenager as any I have known. It is extremely unlikely that she faked what I witnessed. If there was any deliberate deception, it was she herself whom she deceived. Jenny sees internal organs, auras, and spirits. Her clairvoyant talents coupled with her mother's gift of analysis, amateur knowledge of parapsychology, and overall sensitivity bordering on clairvoyance were, I hoped, the allies I needed in order to help Francis. It is worth noting Ava and Jenny's reaction as they entered the house. Each looked at the other and frowned. To them, the place seemed charged. Within minutes, Jenny had seen not one spirit, but three an older couple and a sad, lost young woman. Both Ava and Jenny agreed that the girl was probably not the poltergeist agent. Frances described the phenomena she had witnessed while I examined the house and looked for normal explanations. Meanwhile, the sensitives gravitated towards Frances's, formerly Meg's, bedroom at the end of the hallway. I could discover no satisfactory normal explanation for the strange phenomena that for two months had bothered and finally terrified Francis. The latches on the doors leading off the hall work, the sliding window and closet doors in Francis's bedroom required a normal push before they would open or close, and the drawers and doors in the kitchen were in normal working condition. Meanwhile, Ava and Jenny were having better luck, and by the time I joined them in Francis's bedroom, they felt that they were in report with the intruders after establishing communication with the older couple ava and jenny and i moved into the bedroom next to the living room this room impressed the sensitives as peculiarly gloomy and oppressive meanwhile francis was skeptical and rather disgusted with the queer procedure and she sat in the living room and waited Two things happened while we were in this bedroom that are worth noting. One, Jenny's eyes followed the movements of the invisibles in the room. For several reasons, it seems to me highly unlikely that her eye movement was staged for my benefit. 
It was done without fanfare, and I might easily not have noticed. She was totally absorbed in the adventure. That is what it was for her, and gave no hint of insincerity or even subconsciousness. Most importantly, she is simply not the sort of person who would stoop to deceit. She wears her sensitivity very lightly. Two, Francis suddenly screamed from the living room, My God, what are you doing in there? We left the bedroom at once and learned that Francis had just seen one of the dining room chairs, which had stood away from the table at a 45 degree angle, slowly turn and pull itself up against the table as if some invisible hand were straightening up. I was privately skeptical and wondered if Francis hadn't imagined but upon close investigation, I noticed four clear indentations on the thick carpet where the rollers of the chair had apparently sat moments before. This was the only time in two months that Francis saw furniture in movement. The slamming windows and closet doors two nights earlier had been heard, not seen, at least not clearly seen. The rest of the afternoon, an hour and a half, we spent with Francis in the living room where Ava dealt first with the Invisibles, and then with Francis. It is worth noting that both Ava and Ginny object strenuously to the word exorcism as a description of what was accomplished. First, they say, they did not and would not force the spirits out of the house. And second, they were not concerned with getting rid of the spirits, with merely stopping the negative activity. I am using the term, however, with those reservations, because neither they nor I can think of another one to describe the process. Ava's approach was both imaginative and rational. She proceeded in three-step fashion. One, she began by getting the spirits relaxed. Let's imagine them in an old-fashioned porch swing, right here, the entryway, Ava told Jenny, and they invited the spirits to sit down, swing, and relax. Two, she tried to convince the spirits that place only existed for them because of their belief in it. She explained to them that if they thought in another way, they would find themselves on another plane altogether, one in which place was only a fiction. As she talked, both Ava and Jenny felt them drift away, and after searching the house for signs of them, declared them to be gone. Three. Ava tried to convince Francis that the poltergeist effects she had experienced were impossible without subconscious permission and participation on her part. She suggested that in order to move objects, cause feelings, etc., Meg had to borrow energy from someone, in this case, Francis. Ava was completely unsuccessful, however, in persuading Francis of the existence in herself any kind of invitation, conscious or unconscious, for this kind of activity. A strange thing happened that night. Absolutely nothing. There were no sounds, and even the doors stayed shut. Well, what do you know? A surprised but still very skeptical Frances thought to herself the next morning. For the next week, she slept on the living room couch, fully dressed, with the keys in the car and the garage door open. She kept her flea zone clear of obstacles. 
she continued to live on the edge. But she had decided to wait and see before she put the house up for sale. She did not have to. Whatever the poltergeist was had been neutralized, apparently by the exorcism. That summer, Francis painted and wallpapered the bedroom. There was no reprisal. Thank you for listening to this Halloween-themed episode of The Runner on the Air. What did you think of this story? Do you believe what Dr. Betty says? Would you like to hear more about this paper? Whether it's more of a reading from it on this podcast, or perhaps even hearing from the man himself, Dr. Stafford Betty, in an interview. Let us know on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or, of course, on our website, therunneronline.com. We hope you have a very happy Halloween. Be mindful of your housemates especially the ones you can't see.